0: I wonder if you've ever heard of a British man called David Shaler. Has anyone heard of David Shaler? Yeah, David Shaler. So he got quite well known because he was an MI5 agent who turned into a whistleblower. He thought some of the things they were doing um, were, were illegal and inappropriate. But more than that, he's also become quite well known because in 2007 he declared, I am the Messiah and I hold the secret to eternal life. Is he the Messiah? Does he hold the secret to eternal life? We have to answer the first question first, okay? We have to answer this question of his identity. We have to understand who he is before we can decide rightly what to do with what he says. Now, he also said that his mission to save the world involved growing lots and lots of cannabis, which should lead us to have some questions. And he predicted the world was going to end in 2012, so not so convinced with this guy. But here's the thing. The, the importance of our words, the significance of what we have to say, is bound up in our identity. It's bound up in who we are. I could, I could declare war on Glasgow today. I'm not going to. But I could declare war on Glasgow today. And do you know what would, that would mean? Nothing. It really wouldn't make any difference at all. But if our Prime Minister declares war on ISIS. That has huge significance. You see, the, the importance of our words is a function of our identity. Who we are controls the significance of what we say. Now keep that idea in mind as we get started, okay? We're, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, this kind of eyewitness biography of the life of Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus setting out his big plan his big plan to go to Jerusalem and to suffer at the hands of the leaders there to die and then to rise again and return in glory. We saw Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his long-time kind of companions, pull him aside and say, I don't think so, Jesus. This is not a good plan. And Jesus set him straight. Jesus said, no. You have not mind the things of man we need to have the things of God in mind. Jesus also wanted to say that Christians' lives need to look something like His life. They need to have that taking up of a cross, that kind of moving towards letting go of our own life and taking hold of His plans for our life. So that's kind of where we've come from, and today we arrive at this very supernatural passage, very famous passage called the the Transfiguration. I managed. I imagine many of you are very familiar with this story. Probably heard it many times. We're going to take some time to think it through and to think about the significance of what's going on here. Transfigured, by the way, just means changed in appearance. It's a bit of an unusual word, but changed in appearance. So, why don't we re- begin by reading together? If you've got one of these church Bibles, it's on page 984. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 17, and again in these church Bibles. That's page 984. So starting at chapter 17 in Matthew. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray together and then consider this. Father God, we come to your word. Today we read of this remarkable story. We hear your voice. Lord God, please would you help us to listen carefully to you this morning, to hear what it is you would have to say to us. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak into our hearts and lives words of life and words of truth this morning. Amen. So just a few days after this um, setting out of Jesus' plan and Peter's big disagreement, Jesus takes this inner circle off for a private tip. He takes Peter, James, and John, this, um, some of the first disciples Jesus called, this inner core who will show up again in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew, and then who will go on to be really significant key leaders uh, in the early church. He takes them on a special trip. Now notice... In this group is Peter, who Jesus so sharply rebuked last week. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. And yet Peter is still among Jesus' inner circle. Now we so often struggle with that kind of, that restoration, don't we? That putting things back together after an argument. Things often stay awkward for far too long. But with, with Jesus, this restoration is instant. Peter was completely off base. He was 100% wrong when he challenges Jesus' right plans. He was 100% wrong. Jesus corrects him. But notice where we don't end up. Peter doesn't end up in Jesus' sin bin for the next few weeks. You know, he's not like sat in the corner with a hat on while everyone else is around the table with Jesus, but he's restored. He's right back in. Has God ever had to deal with you? getting things wrong do you feel like he has put you on the bench after that feel like I was so out of line how can I possibly be useful to him it's not the way he works see that here it's not the way he works perhaps it's more us than him that puts us on the bench but this inner circle get to see something absolutely amazing something extraordinary something unique Jesus is transfigured before them, verse 2 tells us. Transfigured, changed in appearance. But notice this is not kind of a a, a caterpillar to butterfly type of transformation. That's what we might have wondered if you look at the the word that's behind this. The original Greek word is metamorphomai, which sounds like metamorphosis. And when we think about metamorphosis, we think about caterpillars becoming butterflies. We think about these dramatic changes. But here, it's still Jesus. The disciples have no trouble at all identifying who it is he's definitely changed somewhat though first there's the face shining like the sun what's this well if you're familiar with the bible and the stories of the bible you might think about shining faces and think about moses when he went up the mountain to meet with god he came back down and he had this shining face which wigged people out so um he would veil it to make it less scary though i think a, a, a veiled man would also be slightly peculiar but less so apparently But this isn't just the effect of Jesus spending time with God, is it? This isn't just kind of a a passing glory that fades away. This is a revealing of Jesus' true glory that he has all along. This is shining like the sun. Perhaps a better place to look for what this connects to is a little earlier in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is speaking about how it's going to be in the end. When Jesus is speaking in chapter 13, he says, then, he says, at the end, he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father the righteous will shine like the sun it's exactly the same thing that Jesus is doing here shining like the sun is perhaps Jesus shining before them because he is righteous because he is standing in the kingdom is he standing on this kind of frontier outpost of God's kingdom breaking into the world up on that mountain Just before this episode, Jesus has told the disciples, some of them are not going to taste death until they see him coming in his kingdom. Is that exactly what's happening here? Are they seeing Jesus come in his kingdom? Is that part of what this transformation is showing about him? And then there's not just the face shining, right? But Jesus' clothes become as white as the light. Is it just a glowing Jesus shining through his clothes, perhaps? Just all of him shining like the sun? Or could this be a loaded and connected phrase as well? When I think about clothes as white as the light, this made me think about how God wraps himself in light. Psalm 104 tells us, it says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. It says, the Lord wraps himself in light as a garment. Do you think Jesus' clothes becoming as white as the light? Perhaps saying something about who he is again, perhaps? Peter, when he comes to recount this experience later, in one of the letters he writes this in our Bibles, he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. JC Ryle, one of those historic Christian preachers and students he says the corner of the veil was lifted up to show them their master's true dignity do you get that sense of what's happening here when we see Jesus face shining like the sun when we see his clothes as white as the light are the disciples getting some sense of his true glory of who he is that's been that's been hidden and covered for so much of Jesus' life These three disciples, the inner core, are getting a foretaste of the true glory that's always been Jesus's, that always will be Jesus's. Not just a carpenter's son for son, outlying village in the north. Not even just a great prophet as Islam would have him. Not just a, a great moral teacher with some nice ideas. he shines with glory bright as the sun white as the light Jesus is more than any of these just who is he? well the text goes on so let's follow the text just then verse 3 says just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus Moses and Elijah both huge names in the Bible aren't they? Moses was um, chosen by God to deliver Israel from their bondage in Egypt, to defeat Pharaoh and his armies, to receive God's law and his words for his people. Chosen to lead his people through the wilderness to the promised land. Chosen to have a uniquely close relationship with God. Moses was without equal in Jewish estimation. If you checked in with some first century Jews around the time of Jesus and said, Come on, name your guys. Who are the big guys? Who are the big guys? Who are the most important guys? Moses would have been at the top of their list. Deuteronomy 34 says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face. It goes on to say, No one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the mighty deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. See, Moses was, he was the man. He was the, the numero uno of Jewish figures in jewish top trumps he was the card you really would want to have you could beat anyone on any attribute here's moses chatting away with jesus for those jewish disciples this would have been awesome it's like answering the doorbell and finding it's the queen she's just popping around for a cup of tea but then it turns out it's not just the queen she's brought somebody else you see there's Moses and uh, Elijah here Elijah is one of Israel's greatest prophets uh, associated with some of the coolest stories in the Bible hands down perhaps you'll remember the who's God's the real God competition up on top of a mountain the fire from heaven or perhaps you'll remember uh, Elijah's fantastic departure in a chariot of fire carried up and away you can find these stories in 1 and 2 Kings, just further back in the Bible. Amazing stuff to read. The disciples are going to be picking their jaws up off the floor when these two guys show up. But there are going to be some inquisitive ones amongst you who are wondering, why these two? Why these two guys in particular? What does this mean? Sure, it's surely it's just not some random company for Jesus. You know, some conversation partners chosen pretty much arbitrarily well Moses fair enough he's pretty much at the top of the deck although you might have thought Abraham would have him pipped but Elijah Elijah is not quite so obvious when you think about it there's some serious competition for the top prophet spot there are quite a few other major prophets who could have been there and to think about it Moses was described as a prophet in the bit we just read about him so if you've already got a prophet like Moses, do you really need another one to kind of fill out the deck? Why not say a king to round things out instead? Wouldn't King David have been a good guy to have there? Or maybe you want a patriarch. Or, or, or a priest. Maybe you wanted somebody else there. I can picture it now. Do you remember family fortunes? We asked our panel to name a famous Old Testament Bible character. You said Elijah. Our panel said i'm not sure i'm not sure you would have got it why why do we have moses and elijah a lot of people for a long time have said this is easy this is easy it's a no-brainer they said moses and elijah that's dead easy that's the law and the prophets that's these two big chunks of the old testament that's this phrasing jesus himself uses to talk about the whole of scripture the phrase the law and the prophets right moses the law elijah the prophets that's easy Jesus, in chatting with Moses and Elijah, what's he doing? He's showing he lines up with the law and the prophets, the Old Testament text. That sounds like a good explanation. I like that one. Except, of course, Elijah, while he was a prophet, didn't actually write any of the Bible. And there are other prophets who have plenty down on paper. If you wanted to get a prophet who kind of represented the prophetic writings in the Old Testament, wouldn't you have picked Isaiah? Jeremiah, two books. Jeremiah, got to be a winner. So maybe it's not law on the prophets. What about, what about this? Maybe it's Moses and Elijah because they're guys who have famous mountain stories. We read one of Moses' famous mountain stories, didn't we? He goes up the mountain to receive the law on those stone tablets from God. That's an amazing mountain story. Elijah, we talked about his mountain, whose God is the real God competition. Maybe it's guys with good mountain stories. But there are other guys with good mountain stories too. I mean, Abraham goes up the mountain with his son, his only son, called by God to sacrifice him and delivered at the last minute. Isn't that a good mountain story? Noah gets his boat stuck on a mountain. At the edge. That's a good mountain story. So if it's just a mountain story, guys, that doesn't really wrap it up either. It's not working why is it Moses and Elijah maybe you don't have these questions I have these questions when I read stuff do you not have these maybe you don't have these questions if you don't have these questions okay just hang back we'll get to something else in a minute but if you do have these questions I think there's some help right here in the text do you remember skip down to verse 10 we read something about Elijah something more about Elijah right here can you find verse 10 why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first disciples are asking questions about Elijah Do you think they got the same head scratching going on? Do you think they saw Moses and Elijah and they're like, Moses, I get Elijah. And so they're like, tell us more about Elijah, Jesus. What's going on here? Why did the teacher of the law say Elijah must come first? What are they they getting at? Are they talking about how we need to have some match fixing? So Elijah must come first in the race or the competition. No, they're talking about the Jewish expectation that at the end of all things... Elijah will come back first as a precursor where does that expectation come from? the, the tiny little book of Malachi uh, one of the minor prophets you'll find hiding away in your Bibles uh, actually it's the easiest one it comes right before Matthew it's the very last minor prophet should we, should we read a bit just now? flip back with me to Malachi just go straight back from Matthew and into the Old Testament very last chapter very last book in the Old Testament it's a good place to look for what comes next isn't it? Let's read some about this Elijah who must come first. Malachi chapter 4, is page 962 in these red ones, if you got lost. 962. I want to read chapter 4. This is Elijah who must come first. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming. Will set them on fire," says the Lord Almighty. "Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise, with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves relieved from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things," says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. that's the sort of text that this Jewish expectation that Elijah was going to come back first comes from there's a little bit more in Malachi earlier as well the prophet Elijah has to come first before the great and dreadful day and now Jesus tells the disciples that Elijah has already come and the disciples understand it says here in verse 13 they understand he's talking to them about John the Baptist this final precursor event before God's return has taken place, there's nothing left remember we're trying to get to grips with why is it Moses and Elijah I think this role we've just read Elijah has this precursor role of Elijah this one coming before this one preparing the way that helps us make sense of why Jesus is chatting to Elijah here I think what you've got is Moses prefiguring Jesus, Elijah preceding Jesus. That's why these two are here. Moses prefigures, Elijah precedes him. But let me unpack that a little bit. Moses prefigures Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean Moses is like a, a template, an outline. He's like the, um, the, the dotted line you find on a piece of paper that you need to draw around to fill in and find the person. He's a drawing of what the Messiah will be. Moses sets God people free from slavery. Well, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to set them free from slavery to sin. Moses leads them to the promised land. The the, the Messiah is going to lead us to the eternal promised land. Moses stands between the people and God. The Messiah stands between us and God forever. Moses knows he's just this outline, this prefiguring. He knows he's this template he himself talks about it, in Deuteronomy 18.15 he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your fellow Israelites and you must listen to him, and he goes on to talk about the sorts of roles that that prophet coming after will have so, prefigure Moses is a type, a picture, an outline of what Jesus is going to be, proceed Elijah is the one who comes before to prepare the way when the disciples see Jesus talking to these two it speaks about Jesus' identity reinforces Jesus' identity he's the prophet like Moses he's the Lord coming to his temple preceded by Elijah or John the Baptist as the disciples understood totally clear? perhaps not Perhaps this was none too clear for the disciples either. Perhaps it would have left them scratching their heads for the next while. Maybe that's why they ask about Elijah afterwards. But more likely, they were confused because the revelation doesn't stop there. More happens in this transfiguration. The cloud comes. The Father speaks directly, unambiguously, about who Jesus is. Now this cloud, they might have been struggling with, Moses and Elijah, this cloud they're not struggling with. A cloud is not a difficult thing to understand. A cloud is how God's presence is expressed again and again and again in the Old Testament. If you know your Bible, think about the the pillar of cloud leading Israel through the desert. Think about the cloud covering the mountain, like we read, where the law was given. Think about the cloud filling the temple when the temple was dedicated. There's lots of cloud, lots of God's presence. This one isn't tricky. And the divine voice from the cloud, in case we have any questions about who this Jesus is, says, this is my son who I love. With him I'm well pleased. These are exactly the same words the heavenly voice speaks at Jesus' baptism. Back in Matthew three seventeen. As far as we know, the disciples missed that one. They were probably out fishing at that stage. Jesus hadn't called them. But this one, this one's for them. They are the intended audience. So they have no confusion over who Jesus is. I think we can see their certainty in his identity reflected in how they live out their lives. How they stand as the foundations of the church. How they will all go on to die for this one Messiah and His story and His plan. Jesus overshadows Moses and Elijah completely here. The heavenly voice doesn't even say, oh hi Moses, right, there's no, there's no mention of Elijah. These two characters, these pillars of Jewish expectations and hopes, these most significant people from the Old Testament don't even get a mention. When Jesus is in the room. That's a really helpful picture for us of just where he stands. It's not like there's a, a ranking of important people, you know, and they're kinda of here, 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 and Jesus is up here, just out the top. He's in a whole nother playing field. If if all of us humans are in this building, like he's out there on Bass Rock, he's in a completely different category. Jesus is the one who matters. He's the only one who's the Son. He's the only one with whom God is well pleased who He loves. So we saw Jesus' glory revealed, right? The shining face, the shining light garments. Now we've seen His identity revealed with His conversation partners, with the heavenly voice. What for? Why all this focus and attention on the identity of Jesus? What's the point? Just an amazing show for this inner crowd so they can be thinking wow that was something now there's a very clear and significant point the father makes with his final words listen to him listen to him Jesus glory is revealed his identity is revealed so that we listen to him we get front row seats of this amazing Mountaintop event, so we can hear the same message in unambiguous terms. This is my son. Listen to him. You see, when we say things like Jesus is Lord, that isn't just an abstract proposition. It's not just an interesting piece of information, a fact, something which happens to be true that you could put in a collection of all facts. It's a fact. Which has consequences. If Jesus is Lord, if he is master, if Jesus is the Son of God, if this really is Jesus' identity, then when we hear his words, we hear words that have power. We hear words that have ultimate authority. They matter. We must listen to them. So I have to ask you this morning do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to his words as words that come from the very son of God listen to his words as words with absolute and binding authority words which everyone has to bow the knee to princes, presidents pastors even you are there particular words of Jesus that are in view here perhaps, uh, at least for the disciples, his most recent words about what is going to happen to Jesus, how he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise. His most recent words about what it means to follow him, how it means to lay down our lives and take up him. Perhaps they were thinking they must really hear this plan. Perhaps they would be thinking they must believe him when he said he would rise from the dead even though that thing was just impossible back then as it is today it's not a new thing that we don't think people rise from the dead they didn't think people rose from the dead either perhaps they'd be thinking about this call to hear and submit and take up their cross to walk this path of death to self in order to find true life perhaps there are particular words in view But there's certainly a wider message too. Do you remember Jesus' instruction he gave the disciples at the end of this amazing vision? At the end of this amazing experience, what does he say to them? Don't tell anyone what you have seen. Anyone. Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell the other disciples among the twelve. Don't tell anyone. Now, if this is meant to be secret until Jesus has risen from the dead, this instruction, listen to me, surely it's got to apply to the words throughout Jesus' life. When the other disciples finally hear this message, we saw him, we saw the cloud, the Father said to us, listen to him. They're going to have all of Jesus' teaching in view. Jesus' identity means that every word comes with the same ultimate insight, not a limited human perspective. It comes with the same divine wisdom. It comes with the same binding authority. And that, that's what we are to hear and to learn from this today. This is my son. Listen to him. We're to listen to every word Jesus says. so let's get practical how do we actually do this how do you and i listen to jesus right how can we hear the father's voice speaking to us from the cloud and obey it three steps i think in listening we we receive his word we retain his word we respond to his word we receive we retain we respond so first we receive I mean how did Jesus' words come to us at all how do we receive them in the first place can we listen to Jesus just by putting our ear to the ground in contemporary culture certainly there are many who are happy to talk to you about what they think Jesus said Douglas Adams in his famous Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy he talks about it like this he summarizes Jesus as saying how great it would be to be nice to one another for a change is that what Jesus said just that we should be nice to people for a change if we're gonna listen to him if we're gonna really listen we need to get closer to his voice we need to get as close as we can so we we hear it clearly rather than some muffled regurgitated echo of what he said so where do we go to hear Jesus it's not rocket science is it in the, in the Bible we have four biographies of Jesus. Four Gospels. They record many of His words. They're the obvious place to start. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, take one of our red ones home with you. It's our gift to you. If you're going to read it, take one home. You're welcome. If you do have one, well, get it out and read it. See what Jesus has to say. We gonna listen through reading. We can receive His words through reading. We can receive His word through preaching, like you're doing just now. This if it's true if it's faithful preaching if, if we do it right it's all about taking Jesus' words taking God's words and helping us to listen to them helping us to consider them carefully if I do this well I should be helping you to listen to think about and explore what he says to see what it means for you if you're visiting with us today find yourself a church where this happens where the preacher is all about helping you to listen. If you're, if you're local, we'd love to have you stick around with us. As we keep looking at Jesus' story and His words week by week. Two ways to listen to Jesus. Receive His word through reading. Receive it through preaching. There are lots of other ways too. But let's start there. That's more than plenty. Now, a couple of tips about how to do these well. Can I do that? I'm going to do that. First thing, we've got to fight distraction, okay? We need to be realistic your brain's anything like mine. It's chattering away inside. It's busy. There are lots of things going on up there all the time. We're so often distracted. Even if we're turning the pages of the Bible, trying to read it, looking at the words, so often the words go in and straight out. So often, when you're here on a Sunday morning listening to preaching, words go in, they go straight out. We can help ourselves with a few simple tweaks. My brain is so often full up of other things I'm concerned about. I got lots of stuff on my mind. Uh, I've got to remember to order coffee that is really important actually I need to remember to order coffee I've got all these things flying around my mind that are really important that need to get done jobs that keep buzzing when I come to listen to Jesus do you know what can be helpful? somewhere safe to write stuff down so what's in your head you can get it on paper and you can stop thinking about it I have a little app in my phone a task list that I can write stuff down on I get it out of my head I can concentrate a bit more then there's everything which competes for our attention outside of our heads. I mean, is there someone wiggly in the row in front of you? Is there somebody where you're, you're wondering whether they actually have ants in their pants? If these sort of visual distractions get to you, what about, what about sitting somewhere else? Do you know you can sit somewhere else, there's no form to fill in. There is no permission slip required. Um, if, you get, if you get distracted visually, why not come sit at the front? It's not that scary, it's alright. And you can remove some of those things. Am I doing something that distracts you? I bet I am. If I'm doing things that distract you, tell me, so I can stop, okay? If you're reading your Bible or taking notes on your phone, turn on airplane mode. There's an entire army of people, they do it, there are lives to distracting you from what you're doing. All these messages, these buzzes, airplane mode silences most of the digital chatter. It'll defend you from the quick glance at Facebook just to see if anything's happened anywhere in the world. Or has someone posted a new picture of a kitten, which you might miss otherwise. Oh, man. Fight distraction, whether you're listening at home, reading by yourself, whether you're listening in church, fight distraction. Take some practical steps to sort that out. Small groups are good for this. You can't hide in small groups so easily. Great reason to sign up for growth groups in September if you're here. One more tip for actually receiving in the first place Um, Come prepared. Did you know, did you know when you're absolutely exhausted, it's actually quite hard to concentrate? You know, when your eyes will not face in the same direction and they insist on. That that actually reduces your ability to receive what God's saying. Our previous minister in the States used to talk to us all the time about remembering the Sabbath. And he said, remembering the Sabbath day isn't just, it's the Sabbath today. It's remembering it before it comes. Thinking about tomorrow, I'm going to go and I'm going to try and listen to what God has to say so I can get myself in order, perhaps perhaps we would go to bed on Saturday before midnight, coffee is mighty powerful, but sleep is even better it really works if we're coming to listen to God if we're coming to listen to the words of Jesus, words with authority this is important, it's significant imagine tea with the queen when you're so tired, your head flops and your face plant in the jammy scone that'd be embarrassing wouldn't it Imagine coming to meet with God and being so tired that your head flops over in the middle of it. Here in church, we're talking about life and death, matters of cosmic importance. It might not seem like it every week, but we are. The God of the universe has seen fit to speak to us. We want to come and listen. Receive, okay, what about Retain. We don't just want to receive Jesus' words. We actually want to hold on to them. I'm not going to make you do this out loud, but I wonder how many of you could give me the main point of the last sermon you heard. Could you give me the main point of the last one you heard? What about the main point of the the last passage of the Bible you read by yourself? Can you remember what it was about? What about the one before that? What about the one five back? How many sermons, how many Bible passages do you think you've really got stuck inside you? How many think you're a member for your whole life? Do we really listen to Jesus' words if we forget them that quick? If we want to listen, we need to receive and we need to retain. Now you might notice some people around you are taking notes this morning. That is what you'd expect if we were at a school or a university, isn't it? You sit in a lecture and you want to retain what you're being told, you don't just go and try and grab it all but you'd actually write some of it down now this this isn't a lesson but we are trying together to listen to god to retain what he's saying so have you ever considered taking notes have you ever started taking notes and given up it can really help with keeping us concentrating you can even do it when you're reading the bible by yourself if you want to have notes taken and you want to help them retain things what you can do is you can summarize rather than trying to keep up with me i speak too fast perhaps deliberately you might say so you can't write it all down when you summarize when you reprocess and re-express things in your own words it's much easier for you to remember them you can emphasize things pen and paper is great for this underline them draw squares around them you are allowed to write on your bible don't cross things out that's not okay but you can underline them you can underline them you can put notes on the side that's really helpful there's some things you can do to help you remember. There's some things we can do to help you remember. If you have the privilege and responsibility of speaking to other people with Jesus' words, we'd do well to learn from Jesus. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus gives illustrations? How packed the way he speaks is with pictures, with stories, with metaphors. Research shows that pictures and stories are so much easier to remember than words and bullet points. Even if all three bullet points start with the same letter. I know I've done that today. The irony's not lost on me. <clears throat> in fact, I'm not sure Jesus ever gave a three-point sermon with three points beginning with the same letter. Perhaps in the Aramaic he did. Perhaps there's some, some get out there. While you're reading the Bible, there's so many images and stories. When we speak, we can help you remember things too. So note yourself. What else helps us retain? Songs are an amazing way to retain things, aren't they? How much of the top 40 could you sing? Probably, well, some of us none. Uh, but others of us could probably recite a great deal of it. Songs are a great way for us to anchor things in our memory with our children. We've sung lots of Bible word songs. Um, there's some great ones. If you want some ideas, uh, come and ask me for some pointers. We've seen, This is how I have learned so many chunks of the Bible. Works really well. In the evenings, we've been, we've been singing the Psalms. Right, we've been singing the Psalms directly. It's a great way to remember them too. People who do that all their lives learn so many of God's words. One last way to help us to remember, okay, is that we can share what we learn with other people. Research shows when you learn something and then teach it to somebody else, your retention improves so much. And you know, I think Jesus knew that. I think Jesus knew that. He sent the disciples to go and teach, didn't he? Have you ever tried asking people at lunch what they got from the sermon? What was the main point? Or even even immediately after the service, what did you think he was saying today? What about uh, in a small group asking people, what did, you, what did you read and learn in your Bible this week? What did you hear from Jesus? Could be awkward. Uh, how about turning it around? How about this? Why not regularly try to tell somebody else what you learn take one minute at the end of a service try and digest down one thing that you learn and then share it with people maybe you could maybe you could find a way that you could share it with other christians and you could find a way that you could share it with people who aren't yet followers of jesus you could digest this down into something that could open a conversation with somebody else this repeating is really good at helping us retain okay receive retain good but that's not enough the last step in real listening goes further we have to respond as well you see satan knows the scriptures perfectly well you remember in the garden uh, in the temptation he quotes to jesus has he listened In one way yes right he's he's received it he's retained it but not in the way that really matters, this listening that actually applies it. When the father tells us to listen to Jesus, do you think he has in mind merely collecting information, adding stuff to our data banks, maybe some more points and details that we could use to argue with other people later? Some fascinating and yet irrelevant detail. Is that, is that what he meant when he tells us to listen to Jesus? No, he's talking about listening where we really hear, listening where we receive, where we retain, and where we respond to his word. Sometimes it's worse than this, though. We don't just receive and retain and then not do anything with it. Sometimes we just reject it outright, like Peter does. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, I don't think so. Has he listened to Jesus? He heard what Jesus was saying. He heard perfectly well what Jesus' plan was. Did he listen to him? Sometimes we refuse to really listen to God's word because it doesn't say what we want to hear. We think there's a better idea, we think there's some room for debate and disagreement and discussion well, I hear you saying you want to go to Jerusalem, Jesus, but I'm not sure you've considered what this is going to mean for your followers. When the voice comes from the cloud, listen to me. What do you think Peter's thinking? Do you think he's thinking, yeah, listen to him like I do. Or do you think he's thinking, I have failed to listen to the Son of God. When the Father tells us to listen to Jesus, He tells us to listen to one who has all authority on heaven and earth. He's not inviting us to discuss, to debate, to share our opinions and ideas. We listen to Jesus as one who understands perfectly, who knows perfectly, who sees clearly, who is, as He Himself says, the truth. Disagree with the preacher? Absolutely. I'm just a man, I get things wrong. I study hard, you might not notice, but I do. I still get things wrong. Disagree with the preacher, absolutely. But not with Jesus. None of us have any room to question him. None of us should presume to disagree. When we find ourselves bent out of shape by what Jesus is saying, it's us that's the problem. When we find Jesus' words hard to accept, when we find them difficult, it's us that's the problem. When we find them challenging, Hard to put into practice. The problem is always with us. Not with him and his words. This is my son. Who I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples are terrified by the cloud and the voice. And then Jesus comes to them. Look at verse 7. He came and touched them. He came to them gently. Get up, he says. Don't be afraid. Are you afraid? Are you scared of what God might ask or say if you were to listen to him? Jesus comes to us in the midst of all of that. He gently lifts us up and tells us not to be afraid. Why? Why? Because God's son is also our savior. He'll die in our place. He'll rise ahead of us. Let me pray. And then we'll sing of that great truth.